Some of you will have heard the story before, but back before Christ Church began, I, I would preach with some, some, it was infrequent, but with some frequency, I guess, at Trinity Church, uh, the church we planted out of, and, and preaching one-off sermons now and again always presents the extraordinary challenge of text selection, uh, which, which means that every time you get a chance to, to come up and preach, instead of uh, the privilege of doing what I get to do now here week in and week out, which is just preach the next set of verses that come after the last set of verses we looked at the Sunday before, it's always easy at least to know what's coming. The studying might be difficult, but at least we know where we're going next. Instead of that, when you're preaching one-off sermons, like some of you know, uh, you have the whole world of the Bible open to you, and you've got to, to decide what in the world you're going to preach on. And, uh, and it can be a very daunting task. And so what I decided to do in that situation was eliminate the pressure of text selection and, and just pick the book of Philippians. And then each time I would get a chance to preach, which was every once in a while, I'd just take the next chunk of Philippians, and we'd work through that. And that way I would do away with this, this angst I was having over trying to decide what, what passage to choose. And so the next time I preached, I started in on, on Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which is, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. So I preached that text, and it went about as, as well as these things can go. Um, but then I walked out to the lobby after the service was over, and somebody came up and asked, why in the world did you ever decide to preach those verses? Uh, which which is, is a very disturbing question to get on the other side of just preaching them because the best answer I had to that question was the shot I just gave this thing when I was up there for 40 minutes or whatever doing it. But the question still came, why, why did you bother preaching those verses? And so we started talking a little bit, and, and this person thought that you know Philippians has some really amazing sections in it. So if you're going to preach, uh, why, why not just jump right to Philippians 2, for example, where's there, where there's that, that hymn about Christ's incarnation and exaltation. Just jump right to that and, and start there. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, you know, they're just not, they're just not that exciting. And, and I tried to explain to this person, which I'd already done when I started the sermon, but I tried to explain again that I was going to work through the whole book when I had the chance to preach. And so we were starting at the beginning and, you know, going along in that way. But, but the, the explanation still didn't go over very well. They were, they were unconvinced of the fact that I'd made a good text decision. Um, but with that in mind, whenever we come to a section of Scripture that might be described as being maybe not as exciting as other verses... Whenever we come to verses like that, um, that might maybe strike a person as mundane in the course of our expositional studies, that experience always comes to mind for me. And, and it comes to mind again today because these last few verses might not seem all that exciting in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we, we think of the book of Hebrews and, and when we compare the first three verses of the book of Hebrews with these last four verses, it's really a big difference that's represented there in terms of the, the climactic theological nature of the content. Because in those first three verses of Hebrews, you remember that the extraordinary high position of Christ is exalted there in, in astounding ways that, that, that just cause us to be drawn out in worship. It's amazing. And then we come to the last four verses of Hebrews which basically reflect a personal note to the audience that the, that the preacher is addressing. You go from this climactic theological high at the beginning to now we have this, this closing personal note of Philippians 2. These are the first couple of verses of Philippians to that magnificent Christ hymn in the middle of, of Philippians 2. These are, these are clearly two different types of sections. Um, the more mundane parts of the letter seem to pale when we compare them with the other uh, as, uh, sections of the letter that, that reach such, such heights. So, so why study these less exciting parts? 
For example, today we're looking at 22 to 25 of Hebrews 13. Why, why not just get through the benediction like we did last week? That was, that was theologically compelling, that, the benediction we studied the last time. Why not just get through that and maybe in the course of the study we could, we could include a brief comment about the preacher's closing note so that at least we said something about those few verses. And then, and then we, just, we just move on in our study of Hebrews, leave the rest behind and we're on with our studies. Why, why take the time? Uh, to, to bother with studying uh, verses such as these. Um, and, and while that question is there, the why bother with this question is there, at the same time, we, we know why we're going to bother with this, don't we? We, we? we do know why we study these things. Because while Scripture is diverse in terms of its, its peaks and valleys with regard to the excitement that it might elicit in our hearts, uh, well, while Scripture is diverse in that way, and that some parts we know grip our hearts uniquely, and that's different than other parts, Scripture is diverse in that way, we also know that Scripture is uniform in its divine authorship. So, so that means that no matter the immediate content of the particular verses we may be studying, we know, like Paul tells Timothy, we know that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Whether we're considering the, the, the emotional highs and lows of David's psalms or, or whether we're thinking about the immense power of the Lord Jesus, you remember in Mark chapter 4 when he speaks and the storm is still, or whether we're considering that the nine chapters of genealogies that begin First Chronicles. All these scriptures, in all of them, we have God's word to us. God is speaking. And we know that through the whole word of the scriptures, he transforms us into wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. And so, and so back to that original question, why study, why study the greeting in, in Philippians when I started that back then? Or why, why study the personal note that closes out Hebrews here? Well, we study these things because through the human authors of Scripture, God has chosen to speak. He makes His truth known. And whether that truth is reflected in high theological heights or whether that truth is reflected in something as seemingly common as a personal note like we'll study today, either way we know this. We know God is speaking to us from this book for His Christ formation purposes in our lives. That there's not one corner of the Bible that we don't need. And so, when it comes to our studies together, we don't skip stuff. It takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And, and, and I know you know that, but it's a good thing to remind ourselves of from time to time. Uh, and, and the verses we're studying today give us a good occasion for doing so. Because Hebrews 13, 22 to 25, it, this, this is just a, a, a personal note. It's seemingly more mundane. It is seemingly more common. Um, they're certainly different last verses than we had in the first verses of Hebrews when we started the book. But that doesn't mean we don't need them. We need these. And, and we express our need for that even in the song we sang just before, this, uh, just before our study. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith where? Where is the foundation of our faith ultimately laid? How do we know how to follow Jesus? How do we know what it means to trust in His cross and the significance of what that means for us? Well, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. This is what we need. And so now we put that conviction that we sang about into practice as we think through uh, this, this final section. Uh, so we're going to do that now. 22 to 25, you can have an eye on that text. Um, it'll be helpful as we follow along. And, and as, we, as we think about this, th there is a sense in which we feel like we're, we're reading other people's mail in this last section. Um, purposefully, we're going to be thinking about this, uh, these verses under the heading of, of a personal note. And, and we're calling it a personal note with good reason. 
Um, for, for example, uh, there, there's a few in here, but, but one is the preacher references Timothy's release in this section. Remember Timothy, Paul's understudy. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little more in, in a minute. But, but he references Timothy's release in a way that, that really only the original audience could have been sure about exactly what's happening there. Uh, because if you just take a, a look at verse 23 as an example, he uses that term translated release to speak about Timothy. But that word is used two different ways in the Bible. On the one hand, it is used to, be, uh, to speak about release from prison, which we, which we think about here when we read this. But at the same time, in Acts chapter 13, verse 3, it's used to speak about Paul and Barnabas being released from their church for a missionary journey. And in the context of Hebrews 13, we, we can't be totally sure which it is. Is Timothy being released from prison and that's why he's coming? Or is Timothy being released for a missionary journey and that's why he's coming to these Christian believers? Balance of probability, probably Timothy was being released from prison, but we can't know for sure. However, the first audience must have known that's why the preacher, who obviously has the capacity with language to be very clear about very important things, but, but obviously the preacher knows they know, and that's why he can write in an ambiguous way. It's personal. Clearly, clearly the preacher and the people share information together that we don't share. So, so as the saying goes, the you in the text is not the same as the you in the pew. Remember all the pews we used to sit in in church. You know, the you in the text is not the you in the pew. This note was personal uh, at levels that only the first audience could have understand, uh, understood. Uh, with that said, however, this personal note, as we've been considering, is Scripture, which means that while it wasn't first a word to us, it does continue to be God's word for us. And, and so we'll work through it from this perspective, this personal note perspective. Um, but, but in this note that the preacher leaves his audience with, we do have a number of ongoing implications just for our own lives as we seek to faithfully follow Jesus, especially reflecting on all the high truth that has come to us through, through the message of Hebrews. Um, so again, looking at the text, the first thing we're going to pick up on is that this personal note is written with a loving and considerate tone. It's written with a loving and considerate tone. So you get this here in verse 22. I'll, I'll just read it for us again. It says, brothers and sisters, and then I urge you to receive this message of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Um, so, so this preacher begins, obviously, by addressing his audience in a loving way. He's using family language here. Um, he speaks to them as brothers and sisters. Uh, now, now, to speak to them in this way, no doubt, brings to mind what the preacher has already said about mutual uh, inclusion in the family of God. Even in his final note, he's trying to draw big truths together. And back in chapter 2, he spent a great deal of time on this where he explained that, that God's purposes through Christ were to do what? Well, they were to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And, and with this Christ also in chapter 2, he's not ashamed to be called our brother, the preacher has said. And then we get into chapter 12 where we read that through Jesus' work, we're actually all now like firstborn sons in the family of God. Which if you remember, culturally speaking at that time, being a firstborn son had significant benefits. It was a, it was a high place of, of honor. And, and so now in Christ, the preachers made the point that we're all like firstborn sons in God's family. And, and now he speaks to these believers in that kind of familial language of, of uh, siblings, brothers and sisters. Um, 
It's language that reflects God's gathering kindness to us, ultimately through, obviously, through the supreme work of Christ. And it's language that reflects the common bond of love that we share as God's people. He's talked about brotherly love back at the beginning of chapter 13, that love we have for one another. This is a term here of, of gospel endearment and connectivity as he addresses them in this way. And, and so in noting the tone of the preacher here and the, and the affectionate language that he's using, we can again be uh, aware of the preacher's example of, of ministry. He's, he's had some really strong words for this congregation. Uh, there's no doubt that many members of this church would have been feeling convicted, maybe even uh, slightly discouraged because of the truth that's been communicated here. Clearly, some of these folks were very close to uh, being tempted away from Christ, and they probably felt the weight of that temptation, the danger of sin, and those kinds of things. And it just repays us to notice the preacher's tone as he finishes the letter. Because he's not, a, he's not addressing these believers in a way that's demeaning or patronizing, though this group has been going in foolish directions. But his tone isn't denigrating in any way. Instead, he's addressing them in, in, the, in the most powerful gospel language of affection available to them. He, he's addressing them as siblings in Christ. We're family, he's saying. And it's just noteworthy that rather than communicating to this group that's, that's made some, some poor decisions and faced temptations in, in, in not very commendable ways, as he's addressing them, rather than communicate from a posture that's, that's holier and now, holier than now, um, ra- rather than finishing with any kind of, of patronizing tone, we see that the preacher is nurturing. He's, he's speaking to them in a way that's loving. And he's not just loving, but he's also practically consider it, if we can put it that way. We see this towards the end of verse 22 where he references writing to them briefly. We spent a little time a couple weeks ago uh, making our case for the, the fact that Hebrews was first a, a preached sermon and then later re- written down to be passed, passed around to the various churches. But here he says he's written to them briefly. And um, it's interesting to note that scholars uh, point out that this is a common and actually a very polite literary device of the day. And it's a, it's a polite literary device in the context of personal letters. Um, in fact, Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 5. He speaks of writing to his audience briefly too. He uses the same kind of language here. Um, and, and so it's pointed out that, that, it, that it's a standard writing practice to tell the audience that, that the author has been careful to not get too wordy. It's a, it's a standard courtesy of the day. Um, to, to give it a, a modern explanation, we'd say this is a polite way of acknowledging that, that while you might have important things to say as the author, your listeners don't have all day. They have lives too. And, and so, and so you're, you're engaging in some brevity here. You're careful with the amount of words that you use, which again can pass us by and we think, oh, that, that doesn't really have much bearing on this letter, except, except all this goes toward the preacher's loving and considerate and nurturing demeanor toward his audience. He's not just affectionate, but he's very practically considerate. He's addressing his audience in terms that reflect the common bonds of gospel love and the fact that they're a family. And he speaks to them in a measured way that communicates, at the very least, a basic respect for their time. It's so practical what's here. Um, really, the preacher's proving, once again, to be one of those leaders we can imitate, like he referenced back in, in verse 7 of chapter 13. If you remember that, we, we can imitate him, not just in holding to the, to the theology that he's been teaching us, but we can imitate him in the very practical way that his tone is obviously one of love and consideration. E- e- even though the dialogue gets heavy, 
And we think about that. He's had some weighty and serious and probably very troubling things to say to these Christian believers. But even though it's heavy, the preacher's tone continues to be that of, of, of nurturing care. Which, which is just a good reminder to us in that, in that we can have true truth to say. But if we say it with the wrong posture, if we, if we say the right thing in the wrong way, that can be very unhelpful. And, and we know this. The, the, the preacher could have been very demeaning in his tone with this, with this congregation. Uh, they, they, they had done some foolish things, but he wasn't demeaning. He's not demeaning in any way. And, and we just know how important this is, whether it's a, an evangelistic conversation with a friend at work or whether it's, it's a parenting conversation at home, whether it's one of those necessary conversations with somebody else in the church. Uh, there, there's that Proverbs 15:2 principle that always holds true and that the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. We can say the right thing in the wrong way and have very ill effect with that kind of, with that kind of speaking. And the preacher's aware of that here. So, so he, he writes this personal note uh, from, a, from a posture that's loving, from a posture that's considerate even of, of their time. Um, and, and in this, we can just do some, some quick diagnostics on ourselves. We, we, we have occasion to speak about Jesus from time to time. We have opportunities to talk about what it means to follow Him and the varying relationships we have, whether it be coworkers or kids or, or, or friends that we're around, extended family members. And when we have occasion to speak, even when we have occasion to, to uh, confess and speak with conviction about hard truths that are reflected in following Jesus... We can ask ourselves, are, are, are we loving in our tone of address? The preacher doesn't get defensive here. He doesn't get bombastic. Are, are we considerate of those with whom we speak? We, we, we're, we're, we're probably uh, very tempted to, uh, to either get too big and, and, and try to press our views or, or we step back and we sound like we don't really believe we're saying, uh, the things we're saying are true at all. There can be all these different dynamics, but there's a considerate, loving tone that's exemplified here. We can, be, we can be thinking about even the number of words we use in those conversations, which I know is ironic coming from me up front as the only one who's talking. But, but we can be considerate of these things as we, as we engage in, in gospel service in the world. So, so the preacher has this personal note that begins with a commendable tone. We can call it that, this loving and considerate tone. Um, and then he moves on from there, from this from this. Um, commendable tone, if we call it that. Secondly, he moves on uh, to make an appeal in this note. He makes an appeal, which is the rest of verse 20, where, where he says to them, uh, brothers and sisters, and then I urge you to receive this message of exhortation. I urge you to receive this message of exhortation. Message of exhortation, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but that's actually a, a technical phrase that would describe the sermon time in a, in a synagogue. So, so this is, I urge you to, to uh, receive this sermon, is what he's saying to them. And, and that word urge there, if you're reading from the, from the CSB, uh, that word urge might be a little too soft in communicating what's being called for here. Uh, because if someone is urging you to do something, usually uh, that kind of language of urging puts things in a category of, of possible options. Uh, it's, it's language that conveys something you, you could do. It's something that conveys something that you might end up doing. But it doesn't uh, convey something that you necessarily are obligated to do if somebody's urging you. Um, so, 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 for example, um, maybe you make the fatal error of answering your phone even though it's a number you don't know and the delayed recorded person on the other end says that your car warranty is expiring. What would they like to do? Well, they would like to urge you 
they'd like to urge you to, to take advantage of this one final opportunity to extend that warranty. And so what are we to do? Are we compelled by the urging? Do we feel morally obligated by the urging of our new robot friend on the other end of the phone? Well, so some people might. I don't know. The calls keep coming, so it must work somewhere. But, but when we're urged by that recorded plea, what do we do? Well, we probably hang up with a grumpy word or two and block the number. We've been urged, but it has no effect on us. The, the urging was optional. And, he, and here the preacher urges. I urge you to receive the message, he says. And urge can make it sound like the preacher here is, is almost wringing his hands and just really hopeful, anticipating the fact that, that maybe this congregation is going to take all I've, all I've said to heart. Oh, I really hope they do this. It's, it's kind of a wringing of his hands sounding phraseology here. But that's not the meaning this word conveys. In fact, the, the Greek word itself is a word isn't a word of, of a kind of hopeful or even desperate desire, but it conveys a very serious and earnest appeal. In fact, it's translated as appeal in the, in the ESV uh, translation, um, but, but it has that, that weight of urgently employing, imploring this audience to, to receive the message of the book. There's, there's a weightiness to this term. And, and it's a term that isn't first used here in the book of Hebrews. In fact, the weightiness of the terminology is evident just by the fact the preacher has already been speaking in this appealing kind of way. In fact, that's how it's most often translated in, in Hebrew. So, so, for example, back in chapter 3, he's appealing to Christians there. And in that case, he's appealing to them to resist sin. That's a, that's a most serious situa- thing to consider. In chapter 6, he's appealing to them, again, to hold fast to the hope that lies ahead. Chapter 10, he's appealing to them to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Chapter 12, he's appealing to them to, to accept God's discipline in their lives, even when it's painful. And so here now, we get to this section, and, and rather than offering a kind of, of wish, dream, hope that they'd pay attention to his sermon after all, no, instead of that, he's appealing to them one final time in that they would receive, and actually it's, it's a word for endure there, in that they would endure this, this sermon of truth that he's just delivered to them. That word translated receive, it means to, to stand up under something. And that's what's being called for here. The preacher is appealing to this congregation to endure these words about the supremacy of Christ. Which just reminds us that he's, he's not expecting them merely to consider the truth about Jesus that he's been presenting as a kind of philosophical option. And he's not calling them to, a, to, to, to balance the possibility of some of his truth against maybe some other religious frameworks that, that, that might seem a little more uh, appealing now and again and kind of pick and choose the pieces that work best for these people. No, he's appealing to them to bear with this teaching. Bear with it. It's a word that Timothy used, Paul uses to Timothy, bearing with one another. Uh, in, in the context of a local church, it, it, to translate it woodenly and maybe a little too lightly still, but it just means put up with it. Make this a part of your life. This is something you need to stand up under. And, and so he appeals to them. Endure this teaching that I've given you, is, is what he's saying. This isn't an opinion to be considered. This isn't, this isn't anything of that nature. Instead, it's transcendent truth that must be yielded to, he's saying. And as we think back through Hebrews, we can see why the preacher is compelled to make this one final broad appeal. He's appealed to them already in a whole bunch of different categories. Now he makes this one final strong appeal at the end. And we can see why he needs to as we get to the end of this this letter. Because on the one hand, these Christians, uh, they, they, they may be tempted not to bear with this message. Well, actually, there's a, there's a few reasons they may be tempted to not bear with this message. Um, one reason... 
quite frankly, is that this sermon is very theologically thick. It's a heavy one. Even if I talk with my other pastor friends and tell them, you know, we're preaching through Hebrews, immediately the eyes go big and, oh, it's a heavy book to study and to, and to work through. Even for us as we've, been, as we've been working through it, we think about all the, the, the ground the preacher's covering from expounding those Old Testament passages that speak about, speak about the wilderness generation and losing their entrance into the promised land. Then there was that Melchizedek character and how did that play in? He comes from this priesthood that's outside of a normal priesthood and yet somehow Christ is, is connected to that and that makes all the difference, he says to us there. And, and then we've got the implications of the insufficiency of the law of Moses, of, of all things. How, how in the world can that be insufficient? And then, and then all of that climaxing in the, in the superior work of Jesus, putting all of this together, Hebrews is a whole lot to take in just cognitively. It's a lot of truth. And one thing we know about this group, at least in the recent past, is that they have had a particular demeanor that tends away from thinking really hard about theological truth. They have been lazy. The preacher said to them back in chapter 5, and I'll just read this little bit here for your, for your uh, consideration, but he says, I've got a whole bunch I need to say to you back in chapter 5, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. So it's not just that they didn't know, they knew it and forgot it. Need somebody to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He says, you need milk, not solid food. You're being babies. You're not thinking well. They got mentally lazy in, in their grip on the truth. And so no doubt the preacher is appealing to them to receive this message about the exclusive supremacy of Christ because he knows that they have a propensity toward this kind of thing. So he's saying, I want you to think really hard on this. Bear this message up in your minds. And, and it's not just the theological laziness that's a concern, but the preacher also knows that the message would have been, no other way to say it, heavy emotionally for them. It just would have been. We think about chapter 6 where the preacher speaks about those who have, who have metaphorically re-crucified the Lord Jesus by ultimately rejecting Jesus. And he says, forgiveness will not be there for people who do that. Now the preacher goes on to say that, that this congregation hasn't done that themselves, but there's this danger there. And no doubt this church would have known people, as we all have, who once embraced the faith, claimed to embrace the faith, but now seem so vehemently opposed to it. And whether those folks are in this particularly lost category of persons or not only God knows, but this is heavy stuff. And the preacher knows this is heavy stuff. And some in the congregation might be tempted uh, because of those people who they're connected with and they know they might be tempted to, to not endure, to not receive the preacher's message simply because of the emotional weight that it bears. And then, no, no doubt we, we've felt this as we've studied these sections ourselves. I've felt this. We think through the eternally dismal <coughs> conditions for those who reject Jesus and, and it's desperately heartbreaking. And so we could see how easy it would be to say, you know, I like some of the things you said in your sermon. You started out really big, and that, that kind of made me happy. And a little bit of the theology, you know, I kind of enjoyed thinking through that. Uh, the, 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 the mental laziness, that wasn't a problem at all for me. But I'll tell you what I can't take. I can't take you, preacher, speaking about Christ as the exclusive way and those who are rejecting Him being forever removed from any kind of the grace of God. That I'm just not willing to. That may, gives me too big of a heartache, and I cannot yield to that kind of, that kind of speaking. So he would know that this kind of emotional weight would be on these people as they're considering the significance of this truth. And then, and then and not only the, the, the theological thinking and the emotional weightiness of it all, but the, the, big, the big thing behind all of that is that cultural pressure that they're facing. 
These believers, we know on multiple levels, they're, they're mocked because of Jesus publicly. Friends have endured prison. They've had their stuff taken, all of those kinds of things. And, and so in this sermon, the preacher has not come and given them anything that allows a kind of cultural relief from the systems of belief around them. He's not saying, you know, it would be really nice, uh, Hebrews, is if, you, is if you just kept following Jesus, but make sure you do it in a much quieter way. And if anybody asks, don't say anything. You can just kind of hide back in your homes. Don't say anything about it. That'll keep you out of trouble, that kind of thing. He hasn't said anything of that nature. In fact, the exact opposite, he's come and he's told them, renew yourselves in the truth that it is a privilege to be disgraced by the world because of Jesus. Isn't that chapter 13, verse 13? Be willing to be outside the camp, socially disregarded, be willing to be out there and bear the reproach Jesus endured. So, so to follow Christ is, is, is a social cost. Some may, so, some may like us, but many may mock us or even worse. And the preacher says to them, I appeal to you, bear with this message of exhortation. Bear with the truth and, and live a life that reflects the fact that Jesus is the supreme one. There's all these reasons why we may not want to bear with it, but bear with this. And then, so even as we reflect on Hebrews in a, in, a, in a whole sermon kind of way, it's those kinds of things the author knows, which are, which are very real pressures in his audience's heart, it's those kinds of things that are pressures for us too. And, and, and we need these kind of reminders to bear with the truth, to stand up under the truth that is represented in these pages. Um, maybe just in terms of, of a personal inventory, we can, we can think about this. Um, of the pressures this audience faced, is there one that you particularly identify with? I was trying to do this exercise in my mind as I was preparing this. Um, is there one of their, their uh, pressures that, that is particularly um, weighty for you? Maybe it's the, it's the strain of, of theological commitment and understanding. That can be a, a, a strain for us. It's just easier not to care so much about, about Jesus. I don't need to know the biggest things in the world about Him. I'm happy just to, you know, Jesus loves me, He loves you, and we can go on. I don't really need to, to think through the depths of what it means to know Him and love Him and follow Him. Or maybe it's the emotional difficulty of acknowledging that Jesus is the only way, and those who reject Him have only eternal judgment in their future. That's, a, that's an extraordinary pressure to be under. Or maybe, maybe it's the cultural pressure that to follow Jesus means disgrace from my peers. And that can seem like a tremendous burden to bear. That can be a tremendous burden to bear. And so we can just take a personal inventory and, and check ourselves. Is there one of those that's most prominent in my own heart's temptations? And there is. I'm not going to tell you mine. You can think of yours on your own. Uh, but, but the preacher says here, I appeal to you to bear up with this message of exhortation. Stand firm with the truths about the exclusive superior Christ and what it means to follow him. So, so in this personal note, we, we see the preacher is making an appeal. And, and we just sit with that for a moment. We're, we're going to come back and fill this in here a little bit as we finish the sermon. But we just sit with the fact this appeal is necessary simply because of what it is to follow Jesus with our hearts not only renewed, but still experiencing the pull of the fallenness that we live in in this world and even that still exists in our own hearts. So, so we let this, this simmer a little bit. Um, and then we move on to the next section. Now, now one of the ways we, we know this is more of a personal note is because he's hardly... Uh, doing, making these final comments in a way that would earn him a, a, a grade A in grammar class. He's, he's kind of jumping around between these different things, and we feel the joltiness of it, even as we look at this next section. So he has this urgent appeal to do these things, and then what does he do? Well, he brings up some matters of personal relationship next, and you feel almost whoa, jolted by that. 
But, but, but we're going to think about that here, here next. Um, he brings up matters of personal relationship in verses 23 and 24. Verse 23, he talks about Timothy, who's being released and, and possibly coming to see these Christians. We know Timothy from the New Testament is the Apostle Paul's um, pastoral and missionary understudy. Uh, Paul wrote two letters to him. He accompanied Paul on missionary journeys. Paul left him as the, as the um, trusted pastoral delegate in Ephesus. Um, now, now, I mentioned earlier that we can't exactly nail down the reference to Timothy coming here. The first audience, no doubt, knew what the preacher meant because clearly they had a relationship with Timothy. Uh, but, but either Timothy was being released by a church to take a missionary journey to see these believers. Again, Acts 13.3 uses this kind of language. Or, on the other hand, Timothy's just been released from prison. A balance of probability says that Timothy was probably released from prison. Um, we, we don't have a direct reference in the scriptures, except for whatever this one is, to the fact that Timothy was imprisoned. Um, but Paul wrote a total of five letters from prison. Three of them have Timothy's name attached to them as, as a co-author. And, and the fourth ha- is actually written to Timothy from prison. Second Timothy was, was written to him. Um, so Timothy's obviously affiliated with Paul's imprisonments. Um, and, and probably he was there in prison with him. Well, whatever the case is, though, the preacher brings news that these believers uh, can expect Timothy to be on his way soon. And not just Timothy, but like, like the preacher's already brought up um, in his prayer request section, he, he himself would like to come see these believers. So he's coming. Uh, Timothy will be with me when I see you, verse 23 says. So we've got Timothy, we've got the preacher coming, and then verse 24 we read that the preacher wants to be remembered in, in a greeting to all the leaders and saints in the churches. Uh, so, so again, this is one of those places where we probably have, have the, the Sermon of Hebrews circulating in written form to a number of house churches in that early Christian community. And, and, um, and so the preacher is addressing them, he wants to be remembered to them. And, and it is noteworthy that the preacher references both leaders and saints here. He's had a number of comments to make about the leaders in the local church already, but then he refers to the saints. Saints is a term that Paul uh, really likes in his letters. Um, it's, it's a word that describes ultimately our holy standing in Christ. And, and through Jesus, as Hebrews makes abundantly clear, we are made holy. We're, we're set apart in pure perfection because of Jesus' sacrifice on our, on, our, on our behalf. Biblically speaking, sainthood is not a status granted by the Catholic Church. <laughs> Biblically speaking, sainthood is what we all are made in Christ. We're sanctified, we're made holy, we're cleansed. This is who we are because of Jesus. And so the preacher passes on his greeting to the leaders and the saints in this church. And, and again, if we just take a second to think about the demeanor of the preacher here, just in terms of his tone, this must have been an encouragement to some. Because if we're burdened by the weight of some of these exhortations in Hebrews, the danger from falling away from Christ. You're sitting there and you're realizing that actually has been me. I've been, I've been tending away from Christ because of the cultural pressures or whatever it might be. As, as that weighs on you, to have the preacher close by referring to you as what? Not, not, a, not a weak and, and, and foolish believer who's strayed off the path and not know what does he call? He calls them saints. You're perfectly made pure in Christ. He greet the saints. Let them know that through Christ, they're the holy ones, and I, and I commend them, and I send them greetings. It's a, it's a wonderfully nice thing to say just in terms of, of offering encouragement. And then, he, and then he passes on a greeting from other believers to this church, uh, where he says, those who are from Italy send you greeting. Those who are from Italy send you greeting. This is another reason we know it's a personal letter, a personal note, because, again, we can't be quite sure what's going on here. And I just tell you this, because if you ever study Hebrews again for yourself, this will come up in, in study tools. So 
the same, those from Italy send you greeting. So does that mean that the preacher and some Christians are in Italy and they're, and, and they're, and they're sending greeting to this church, which isn't in Italy? Or does this mean that um, those who maybe were with this Christian group that is in Italy, and they're in the Greco-Roman world somewhere, now they've left, but they know these people because they used to be from Italy, so now they're writing back. What, what does this mean for us? Those from Italy. Are they from but displaced? Or are they from but there? We don't know. First audience knew. We don't know. But that's okay. This is a personal note. We can't know. At the same time, we put all this together, and here's what we can know. Well, what is very evident is that these believers are not alone in their Christian persevering. They're not alone, which has been a theme that the preacher has been on about all through the book of Hebrews, especially as we think about chapter 11 and all those who faithfully persevered in the way of faith. These believers, he's wanting to say to them, they're not alone in their pursuit of Christ. Timothy, he's probably endured some prison time, not, like unlike, not unlike some of these first audience's friends. The preacher, he's away, but he's really looking forward to seeing them. He knows he'll be encouraged to be with them. He's thinking about them. Greet the leaders and the saints, he says. I'm thinking about you people. And then the Christians who are not with this audience, they're, they're mindful of, the, of these believers too. They're in their minds, and they pass on their greetings. These Christians aren't alone. Well, one of the easiest things in the world to start thinking, especially when the social pressure is on for believers, one of the easiest things to start thinking is that we are alone. We're alone in this. Look at us. We're a small group. We're a small group. I'm sure there are other churches in Portland, much bigger, obviously, churches in Portland, but still there are not a lot of Christians in the city that we live in. And so whether it's in our classroom or whether it's in our workplace or at our favorite restaurant, out with our friends, it can feel very alone to follow Jesus. The louder voices of the bigger group can start to weigh heavy and even bring temptation away from Jesus, just as has been the case with this audience here. But we're not alone. There are always Timothys and preachers and churches to be greeted and churches that send their greeting across the globe, even this morning. Uh, maybe you saw uh, Mayos, who recently left us to go to Scotland for a little while. They had posted about going to church this morning uh, on, uh, on Facebook earlier. What a wonderful thing to see. Christians across the globe, while we can feel so small here, across the globe, that they've risen to worship the risen Christ. We're not alone in our endeavors of following the Lord Jesus, which is something that the preacher, again, has made so clear. This helps us. Even as we're thinking about bearing with the exhortations of Hebrews, like we talked about earlier, it can seem so overwhelming, the spiritual laziness that can set in, or the emotional heaviness that's very real here. How can I hold fast to some of these things when the exclusivity of Christ means that those who are far from Him will not be saved, and these things can weigh heavy on me. The cultural pressure is very heavy, but we're not alone. We are in the company of those, the grand company of saints who's both come before, continues to worship now, and will come after us who hold fast to the sufficiency, supremacy, exclusivity of Jesus Christ. They rise Sunday by Sunday on the Lord's day to worship Him. We're not alone, but instead we're all recipients of membership into this family of God. And this is one nice way the preacher can say, don't forget. Timothy, don't forget about Timothy. And me, I'm coming. One church, they, they, they really want to be remembered to you. And, and make sure you give my greeting to the other Christians too. We're not alone in this, though it may feel like you're living in isolation. And that's a huge part of our persevering in these things, simply knowing that we're part of the community of faith. We're not alone in our perseverance. And, and it's not just that we're not alone, but we're also, one last thing here, we're also recipients of God's great gift of grace, which is the final word here. The final word of this greeting, it might be the, the most encouragement of the whole note. Verse 25, where he says, grace be with you all. 
And we read that and we think that's a nice way to end the letter. You know, what, what a nice thing to say. Uh, Paul ends his letters this way. In fact, this is actually word for word the way Paul ends his letter to Titus. Grace be with you all. But, but again, as we get to the end of Hebrews, this phrase is loaded with meaning from, from throughout the book. Grace, so, so the unmerited gift of God's kindness toward us through Jesus. The undeserved gift of God's kindness toward us through Christ. That's grace. In chapter 2, verse 9, it's by God's grace that Christ tasted death for us. Unmerited kindness. Christ tasted death so we would not have to die, but we could again be raised to life. And sin doesn't win. Grace in Christ save us. Chapter 4, verse 16. Because Jesus is our high priest, we approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So it's not just that we're saved through Christ, but the daily and timely grace we need to keep going in the way of Christ is something that's been provided for us. Chapter 10, verse 29. It's the Holy Spirit of grace that applies the truth of Christ's death to us, whom we must never ignore, the preacher says here. The Holy Spirit of grace makes the reality of Christ's crucifixion real to our hearts. Chapter 12, verse 15, we're urged not to fall back from the grace given to us through Jesus, but instead, chapter 13, verse 19, we're called to, to be strengthened by grace, be strengthened by the fact that God has extended undeserved kindness to us just out of the sheer nature of His affection toward us. And in all of Hebrews, we've been introduced to the supremacy of Christ. Je Jesus is this premier, final, climactic, sufficient fulfiller of all God's salvation promises, full stop. He's the one, there is no other. He's superior, there's no higher. He's the better one. And to all who are needy, to those even struggling with spiritual laziness, to those who can be troubled uh, emotionally by certain truths, culturally pressured, to the Christians of this first letter, to Christians like us, Jesus is the one who brings grace. The application of that undeserved kindness from God. Through Jesus, the saving, sustaining, future hope fulfilling, unmerited, unearned, undeserved kindness that God extends is given to us. Grace. And in that we can stand. In that we can stand. It's, it's in response to the power of this kindness granted to us that we press on. Not because those pressures aren't real for us. Those pressures are always going to be real for us. But the grace that is extended to us is sufficient grace for each day. And then so we end with this personal note. And even though this is a, a, a final personal note to a unique congregation at a unique place and time in history, this truth still sings, doesn't it? So we put all of Hebrews together. What is it? Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. This is, this is grace. The grace that saves us. The grace that preserves us. And the grace that ultimately brings us into the final glory of our Savior and all the saints forever. God's kindness. And so we read this. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation. For I've written to you briefly. Be aware that our brother Timothy has been released. If he comes soon enough, he will be with me when I see you. Greet your leaders and all the saints. Those who are from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Which is what the book of Hebrews is. God's grace to us in the revelation of the supremacy of Christ. Let's pray. So Father, we are thankful for your truth. We ask that it would minister to our hearts, that we would be formed, transformed, preserved by it.
We're thankful that uh, ultimately our own merits are not what grant us standing before you, but Christ's merits. And, and you've extended us the undeserved kindness of participation in Christ's work. And we pray that we would uh, persevere well in that way and ultimately uh, bear witness to your kindness to others, that they would be brought into your way as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.